So we are in, uh, continuing in our uh, series in Revelation, and we're in Revelation chapter 14 this morning, and um, this one, this is one that I've been praying ahead for, for a long time, because the topic of hell comes up in chapter 14. And so let me say a couple of things up front, because it, it's grim, okay? It, it just is. And I'll just confess um, my own sin to you, which is, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to read it. And that is, and I'm not overstating it when I say that's a sinful reaction. Because who am I to be embarrassed about what God does? Right? We shouldn't be. And so up front, I'm kind of personally pushing against that desire because it's not a holy one. But there's another part of this, which is I'm your pastor, and I know that there are a variety of people in this room that will have a variety of feelings when we bring this topic up. There are unbelievers here. There are people who have parents or siblings or children who are unbelievers. There are people who have had people they love die in their sin. And it brings up a lot of things as soon as you read these words. Before I say anything about them, <laughs> just reading the words on the page are going to bring up things. And so we need the Holy Spirit to apply his word to each one of us in our situation, okay? Um, it's a bit like opening a can of worms and not being able to put them all back in, right? I've said that to you before. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to crack open the can of worms, and I'm going to leave the worms laying there, and we're just going to keep going, all right? So my intention this morning is not to, I am resolved, I should say, to not make you feel any kind of way, but to just make Jesus feel proud and happy with the way we talk about his word, all right? I'm going to trust what he says, okay? So that's where, I, so if you feel offended, then your offense is with him and what he does and what he says. If you feel happy, I don't know if anyone will feel happy, um, but you're happy about what God says and not what I say, all right? So that's where, that's my intention. Hopefully, I'll accomplish that, all right? All right, so let's get into it. Um, why is this important? I would say it's necessary, this topic discussing hell and eternal futures is necessary for, for first of all, for our own gratitude towards God for those of us who are destined for heaven, who, who are followers of Christ. It makes you grateful when you feel occasionally sort of feel the, the heat of hell underneath your feet and, and realize that's not where you're going, Okay. Because what you'll see here in these verses is, is a parallel contrast happening between Zion and Babylon. Those who live in Zion and those who live in Babylon, which are two cities. Mount Zion is the, became known not as more than just a mountain, but the city of God or the people of God. And Babylon became a sort of metaphor for those who are in rebellion against God. Like, so if you live in Babylon, you're not a believer, right? If you live in Zion, you are. Okay, that's how that... And see, so we get a back-and-forth contrast of what happens to those who live in Mount Zion and those who live in Babylon, those who align themselves with those two different cities. We need to understand this is how God sees the world. 
This is how God divides us up. Those are the two categories that God uses. Those who belong to him and those who don't. Okay? And it's frustrating if you are a modern thinker, or we should say a postmodern thinker, only having two categories is already offensive. I would like to define my own categories. Thank you very much. And the fact that God would say, no, there's only two. He said, well, I'm somewhere in the happy middle. There is no happy middle. Okay? And so right off the bat, we have God is going against the grain of what we have all been steeped in in the way we think, which is defining reality for ourselves. This is not how God looks at it. All right, so Mount Zion, as I said, we're going to see this right off the bat, is an interesting phrase in Scripture. It was initially just a literal mountain near the temple. It became associated with the presence of God, and the meaning expanded, as words often do, throughout Jewish history to include the city of Jerusalem, then the nation of Israel, then the kingdom of God, or even the church. Okay, that's a really interesting word. So let's read chapter 14, the first five verses. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So if you've been following along this series since the beginning, you've already define what some of those images are. The lamb is Jesus. The 144,000 is not, um, as some say, a specific group of Christian Jews who will come in the future and sometime be like supersized Christians. This is referring to the totality of all believers, Jew and Gentile, okay? And I did a whole sermon on that a little while, a few number of weeks ago. I'm not doing it again, all right? And then the virgins, you're like, well, that's weird. That's awkward. Um, It's just figurative language for those that have remained undefiled by sin. Of course, that would include sexual immorality, but it's bigger than that, okay? So what we have here is a new picture of heaven being introduced. It's not all that new. It's, It's familiar to you if you've been reading along. All those made blameless by Jesus are there with the Father and the heavenly hosts, full of joy and peace and worship. It's a very happy picture right? We get a similar picture at the end of this section, acting like bookends to what comes next. You'll see that parallelism in just a minute. But the picture here is perfect. It's perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect satisfaction. All of God's people gathered together around the throne with the elders and the angels and the father and the lamb. Everybody's there. The whole family is gathered and they're just having a party with God. But it doesn't stop there, does it? That's Mount Zion. And then we have the picture shifts to three angels bringing different things. Let's read this, verses 6 through 11. It says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, 
with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Wow. The smoke of their torment go up forever and ever. So let's recap this section in our own words, or I should say my own words. An angel declares the gospel. We have three angels. The first one comes. He declares the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is a repeat of the Great Commission. What does Jesus say to us to do? He says, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every nation, which is every tongue, every single group or category of person on the earth. That's the mission. That's what we're doing right now. And here it's finally done. This angel comes and says, that's finished. That will be a great day. Because when that happens, the only thing left to happen is for Jesus to come back. That's what we're after. So that's finally finished. That's what that angel is saying. And then he tells everybody to worship. He says, worship God. It's done. It's finished. You did it. Nice job. It took you long enough. Right? Then the second angel comes in. Right? After that announcement is made, the second comes in. And what does that angel do is he announces the end of Babylon. And what I told you, Babylon represents the world system that is in rebellion against God. It's figurative reference to the world system of pride, materialism, immorality, and rebellion against God and his ways. She has not only rebelled against God, but it says that she has led other nations into the same. She has forced other people to drink the wine of her sexual immorality, her sin and rebellion. It's not enough for us to just do our own thing in rebellion against God. We always want to share, right? I don't know if you knew this, but we actually export more pornography in this country than ice cream. I read that interesting statistic one time. That's scary. So then a third angel comes and announces judgment against those that have refused the gospel and thus belong to Satan. Judgment against those who have lived in Babylon. Okay, that's the, the comparison we get. We have the beast and the names written on. If you want to know what all that means, it just means who belongs to who. Okay, it's not about what tattoos you get or chips in your head or whatever. It's about who belongs to who. Whose name is written on you is who you belong to. So God, Jesus, and the Father write their name on those who are followers of Christ and Satan or the beast writes his name on those who don't, right? That's just a matter of ownership. 
That's what that represents. So this is a description of the last of the last days, okay? That moment, however long it may be, right before Jesus returns. When everything finishes, that's the time period we're looking at. The end of the age we're living in now, the moment Jesus returns, that great and terrible day. So what about these verses 9 through 11? The tragic irony of this, verse 10 especially, is obvious. Those that drink the wine of Babylon, enjoying the pleasures of this life without honoring the one that created pleasure, will ultimately lead to drinking that undiluted wine of his wrath. So you have the comparison between Babylon making this wine of rebellion against God and saying, drink up! And then God says, I have some wine too. But my wine is wrath against your rebellion. And it's righteous and just. So just like God's love and mercy are complete, perfect, full strength, and unrestrained towards his people, which we love talking about, God's love is his furious love. His unrestrained, undiluted love is a wonderful thing. But in the same way, his wrath is also complete and perfect, full strength and unrestrained towards those that rebel against him and deny his gift of grace. God is never restrained. He is perfect. And when he says, I will pour out my wrath full strength, that means every last drop of it. That's what that says. So then you wonder, if you're like me, you start asking questions. Well, what is the wine of his wrath like? We get a description as close using language as John can get to describe what the wine of God's wrath is like. It's like being tormented with fire and molten sulfur, which is the modern-day equivalent to that would be like hot asphalt that you pour out on the road. Thick, molten, burning sulfur. You ever gotten burning tar on your skin before? It's rather unpleasant. This torment is public, and it's in the presence of the one that they rebelled against. You see that there? Jesus is there. He's not hiding away somewhere else, embarrassed about his just wrath. He is there present and overseeing it. This description is figurative, I think, but it does not make it any less intense. There are some that will say, well, that's just symbolic language. It's not really exactly that. I think you're probably right. I don't know if there'll actually be real sulfur burning sulfur. It may be that John is grappling for a description that would relate how awful it is. And these are what he comes up with his imagination. But think about this for a minute. What's more real? What's more intense, the symbol or the reality to which the symbol points? If you're driving down the road and you see a sign that says Kernersville 10 miles ahead, what's more real, the sign pointing to Kernersville or Kernersville itself? It's Kernersville. So if anything is true about the symbolism of this, it's that the reality is worse than whatever it is John is trying to describe with language. 
It doesn't diminish the intensity of it. It increases it, the fact that it's figurative. So how long does it last? Every day, every moment, forever. It never ends. There's no break. There's no respite. There's no relief. It is a continual, constant torment that never grows or fades in its pain. If you ever just think a minute about the worst pain you've ever felt in your life. And the one thing in that moment, I don't know if you ever had this panicky feeling when you have something that really hurts and it hurts for longer than a few seconds. There's this, at least for me, this panicky thought goes through your head. What if this doesn't stop? Like that's actually worse than the pain itself is the thought that maybe I'm going to hurt like this for longer than a few seconds. Well, in hell, that is exactly what it is. God is everywhere equally all the time. He cannot be escaped or avoided. There is no place where he is less present than another. It's one of the myths about hell that is a problem, is that somehow God is not there. He is there. You read that carefully, you see Jesus is there, present. It's what makes it hell. So in the same way that the love and mercy of God is inescapable, yay God, right? We like that. It's inescapable, never changing, never fading, and always present to those that are in Christ, in Mount Zion. The wrath of God is also inescapable, never changing, never fading, and always present to those that have refused his grace. There are a couple of common heresies, and call them heresies because that's what they are. I can't go into them in depth. I don't think most people want me to. One is called annihilationism, which is a false doctrine that teaches that hell is the punishment of sinners to the point of total extinction. Denies that hell is forever conscious. It's forever in the sense that you just sort of disappear. Those that teach this rely on very novel, meaning unique, and unsupported translations of the original language, particularly regarding the word destruction. Destruction sometimes means to extinction, but it also sometimes does not. It's like it's a a grasping at straws to avoid the eternality of hell. The other is universalism, which is a little more complex. It's a false doctrine that teaches that all those that go to hell eventually repent and kind of change teams at some point. In order to do that, it's amazing the number of scriptures you have to ignore or recap in some weird way. I mean, Jesus taught on this so many times in parables. It's amazing. The wheat and the tares, the unprofitable servant, the net-catching fish, the wise and foolish versions, the sheep and goats, each one of those has is a picture of, at the end, Jesus saying, splitting us into groups saying, Those are, these, these ones are with me, these I don't know. These ones are real believers, these ones are not. Separating one from another into two categories. There is no sense whatsoever in Jesus' teaching on hell, which he did a lot, that there is any return that you can, that the, the fish he throws out of the net that don't belong get to jump back in at some point. 
It is absolutely final. What these heresies amount to are people's attempts to solve the problem of sin and hell and judgment by diminishing the heinousness of sin or diminishing the holiness of God. Remember a few weeks ago I talked about the wrath of God. We talked about the seven trumpets and I said three things. One, if you're uncomfortable with these verses, then is your view of God's holiness too low? Have you made him less holy? And we do things like we use Scripture the wrong way. We say, well, Scripture, John said God is love. Yes, he is. But, you know, there is one attribute of God and only one attribute of God that is repeated with the strength of three repeats in the Bible. And that's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is what we see the people singing in heaven about God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Three times. Two, is your view of your own sin too low? Probably yes. (laughs) Have you minimized the seriousness of your own sin against God so that it seems like um, it's not that big of a deal? Have you forgotten that every individual sin carries the full weight of of eternal damnation within it. You apply your own sense of comparative morality to how God sees sin. Or is your confidence in your own goodness too high? Your goodness is only good in comparison to some less good, some less good than you. But what about when you are compared to God himself, to his holiness? You're not that good anymore. Jonathan Edwards wrote about, he he, he was trying to describe this thought process in human beings, and he wrote that we are like a big, heavy boulder. Imagine a really heavy, big boulder, and it's hurtling down towards hell from an eternal height, meaning it's full speed, full weight, full force, hurtling downwards. And attached to this giant boulder is a thin spiderweb gossamer thread, right? And it's not long enough to stretch the eternal length of that chasm to save you from that boulder from falling into hell. And at some point, that hurtling stone is going to hit the end of the length of that gossamer thread, and it's just going to snap and keep going. And that gossamer thread is your goodness, the strength of your righteousness to stop, to bear the weight of your sin and unrighteousness, is is as if it's not even there. It will offer no resistance whatsoever to that hurtling stone going down into hell. It is as if it wasn't even there at all. You say, but I'm a good person. I do nice things. I give to charities. I serve my community. I do all of these things. I don't cuss that often. I've raised wonderful children. I have a positive impact on the world. I work hard to be a good person. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. People respect me. Your goodness, however great you may think it is, is as if it was nothing. It cannot bear the weight of your guilt. 
and it cannot stretch the chasm between you and hell. So is your confidence in your own goodness too high? See, without Christ, there is absolutely no help, no hope. You cannot save yourself. Then in verse 12 and 13, we have a refocus on Zion, saying to those in Zion, to the Christians, to persevere. The reality of hell, of what he just spoke about, one of the things it does is it keeps us in line. Because I can smell the smoke. I don't want to go that direction. I want to go this way. And there is a, a, a sanctifying element to remembering that hell is a real place. Then we have a final harvest in verses 14 through 15, verse 1. He says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head. I think we all know who that is. And a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, which is just under 200 miles. That's grim, isn't it? You see the comparison again to the wine? Babylon makes her wine of rebellion. And then God says, I will make wine out of you. I will tread you in my, the winepress of my wrath. And the blood flowed so much that a horse could swim around in it for 200 miles. You say, well, that's figurative. That's symbolic language. Yes, it is. But what is it symbolic of? What is he trying to shake us into seeing with that grim kind of gross language? He's saying, picture it because the reality is far worse. Why would you want to go there? Why would you want to live in Babylon for that short period of time where you get to drink and enjoy the wine that she gives you? And trade it for etern- being crushed in the winepress of the fury of God towards sin. What kind of crazy trade is that? We are meant to compare these two together. Which wine will you drink? Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, Lord, take this cup from me. This is what he meant. Because the wine of God's wrath was being poured out 
on Jesus. Unfiltered, unrestrained, undiluted. Poured out from the Father onto the head of Jesus. Jesus was looking at the 200-mile-long lake of the blood of God's wrath and saying, I'm going to take all of that on. It's going to be poured out on me. He knew exactly what he was doing. So why would we not receive his mercy and grace? These last verses depicts the final wave of judgment on the earth, gathering up all the unbelievers into hell and believers into heaven. Look at verses, chapter 15, verses 2 through 4, and the beautiful contrast. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass. That's us. With harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. None of us will say, that wasn't fair. None of us will say, that seemed a little harsh. None of us will say forever seems too long. Because in that day we will see all things clearly, including the great holiness of God, the great travesty of our own sin against him, and the weakness of our puny goodness to save ourselves. And we will see clearly how merciful and great he was in redeeming us from that. And how just and right and perfectly on point his wrath was. It's hard for us to see now because we want to think we're actually better than we are. We want to think that he's more, he's less holy than he actually is. This is the sin that's in my own heart that goes, God, do we really have to talk about this? Can't we just go to chapter 15? And just pretend like this never happened. And God goes, why are you so embarrassed? I'm not. Is God on trial? Would we put God on trial on the witness stand and say, defend yourself? No, it's for us to say, which city do I want to live in? Why are we so hesitant? Why are we so timid to go and knock on the door of Babylon and say, put the wine glass down and come to Zion? 
Because it sounds like they're having such a nice time, doesn't it? Like you can hear the beat of the music and the laughter and the hilarity and the happiness in Babylon and get fooled into thinking that they're fine. I think when you read these words, at least for me, it begins, the the reality of it begins to hit me and I think, God, what do we do? This is not a game. It's not about us. Because Jesus is coming soon, and when he does, for us it will be wonderful, but for those who are not in him, it will be a horror beyond description. There's even some indication that, I mean, it's hard to prove, but there's some indication that those who end up in hell never repent. Their hearts just get harder and harder and harder. So first, I just want to say, if you aren't a follower of Jesus, please. Please receive his mercy. And for the rest of us, that we would be motivated one, by our own gratitude that God rescued us, but also motivated that our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers would not, would see what God says is true, that there are two categories. There are only two places you can live, Babylon or Zion. That's it. I'd like to pray. I think maybe what we should do is first I just want to just pray that God would um, kind of burn, tattoo, sear this truth on our hearts that when we're not reading these verses, we still remember the reality of them. But also I just want to, after I pray for that, maybe after we, you know, we could sing a song um, and just come up here kind of in, kind of intercessorily in the place of people that you are praying for, even as I've been talking, where your heart is just, um, God, I don't want that for them, to come up and just pray for them, um, just up here in the front, and just pray until we're done, That because we can't save anybody. We can't. You couldn't save yourself. If your goodness is not enough to save yourself, your goodness is not enough to save somebody else. Your smartness, your insight, your great wisdom, just the right words, the right timing, all of that is useless something the spirit has to do and so we respond to him i think by praying first repenting of our own you know just hard hearts and then bringing people before the lord beginning to recommitting to praying for them um whether they be 
children, parents, whoever. So don't we stand up together?